difficult. That's where things get hard within the church. Being like-minded isn't a big issue in the church ever, right? We all pretty much, we're Christians. We believe Jesus is the Son of God, died on a cross, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven. We have no problem with that. In fact, we all have pretty similar theological doctrines. That's why we're here and not at the Baptist church or the Lutheran church or Methodist. Or We all come together, and that's how denominations form. Like-mindedness is easy, especially, you know, especially when we grow up in a similar culture and things like that. But one accord, that's where things get hard. In fact, if you were to visit a church... Any time, and you and you walked in, and everyone seems to get along, and people seem really happy with one another, and and really just excited to be at church. You might get a little suspicious, right? If everybody seems to be in one accord, you might think, well, maybe I picked a cult and not a church. If you if you were to do that, it's it's rational to think that because it's very uncommon to truly see that within the world today. But Paul's desire for the churches that he wrote to was that they were of the same mind and in one accord. In fact, the word that Paul uses in Romans 15, it's the same word Luke uses several times in the book of Acts to describe how the early church, and that's why we're sitting like this today, how the early church was to operate in one accord, how they interacted with one another. It's the Greek word homothemadon. That's real fun to say, homothemadon. And it means to be united, sure. Some translations will just put together or united. But most translations, by the way, don't touch this word because it's a very difficult Greek word. And you might say, well, what makes it difficult? And I'm so glad you asked that because I spent a lot of time working on this Greek word. And I don't know Greek that well just yet. I'm still learning. I'll learn the rest of my life but I spent quite a bit of time studying this. In fact, it's so difficult, the ESV doesn't touch it. The BSB, the uh, most modern translations for the record, don't put any kind of translation there. They say united, they say together, and they move on. But it's difficult because it is actually a compound word in the Greek. It combines the Greek word homolomo, which means the same kind, the same likeness, even the same shape. This is where it gets hard. The second half comes from the Greek word thumos. And thumos often gets translated wrath or anger. Well, it doesn't make sense that Paul would want us to be of the same anger, right? Well, there are things that should make a church angry. Sin should make the church angry. We'll get into that as we go this this morning. There are certain behaviors that should make the church angry. But really, when we look closer at the word thumos, it's the same passion. In fact, the word passion there is a fierce passion, the type of passion you are chasing something so hungrily you're out of breath. That's what the Greek means there. So we are in the same passion towards something. That's what Paul wanted the church to do. Now, too often, I think, problems in the church arise when we are passionate for the church for the wrong things, the wrong agendas. We are fierce for the church's mission so long as our vision, our personal vision, also gets completed or our personal mission is seen as valuable. We get upset if it doesn't. We we have our own pet projects, our own own ministries, and when they are not, as we perceive them, uh, prioritized enough, 
Well, that's when division occurs. That's when churches split, and that's when problems arise. But God, in all of his sovereignty, he has laid out a way to stop that within the church. There is leadership. There is, and I I don't love the word because I believe the word's been abused over the years, but God has established within the home, within the workplace, within the church, he has established a hierarchy, a pattern of direction that we have to follow. Now, maybe a better way to look at this and illustrate this is to say every ship has a captain, right? And we want the captain to succeed or we're all going to crash, right? That's why I say even doesn't matter who sits in the Oval Office, pray for them because we don't want them to fail. If they fail, well, the country's going to go down the toilet. We don't like that. So we're doing this series, Leadership and Servanthood. And as the body of Christ, we must be in one accord if we want to see a true revival in our world. So read with me today, beginning in verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. The same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Okay, Pastor Jeff, you have bit off a lot. Hope you can chew it, right? Why start this series in marriage? If we're talking about leadership and submission and servanthood and all of that, why begin in the home? Your pastor's just meddling with things, right? That's the way we sometimes see it. But first and foremost, if we want to see a revival in our nation, we need to start following the pattern that God has laid out for us in Scripture. When God created mankind, he made them, and this will not be the last time you hear this, he made them male and female, He gave Eve to Adam as a wife. And it began, all of human society began right there in marriage. The church, hear me on this. I heard a pastor say this recently. I believe it 100% and I'm going to steal it from him. He said, the battle for the soul of a nation will not be won by ballots or bullets, but by biblical boldness. What is revival? We talk about revival all the time. And there are people who say, well, revival's already here. Some people say revival's not coming. Some people insist we need revival. Well, I will tell you this. If we don't have a life living in the pattern that God has outlined for us, revival is moot. Revival is the reviving of something dead. And if we can't even recognize that something is dead, there's a problem. There needs to be life in the design that God has given it. He gives us a formula for that life and a formula of leadership and a a formula for servanthood. 
And I'm going to dive more into that as we go. That's, that's the whole point of the message today. But God's formula for leadership and servanthood in marriage is this. It's very simple. Wives who submit plus husbands who lead equal marriages that last. Now, some may ask, why do a series on leadership and submission at all? It's typically something you preach on when there are problems within the church, when there are issues, when there are issues with leadership and things like that. And that's not to say we have problems with that in our church, but I think it's always a good idea to have a good foundation. And like we often say in board meetings, we want to fix the roof before it's raining, right? We don't want it leaking on us. Now, you may be here and you may be saying, okay, fine, all right, but my marriage is fine. My wife and I, we have figured it out over the years. Well, hopefully, I mean, that's great, but hopefully today you find something that makes your marriage even better. You may be watching online or listening and hearing the message and saying, you know, I think I can skip this one. I'm single and I don't have plans to get married anytime soon. That may be true, but there are still good tools to put in your toolbox for how you will live with your future spouse. Now, it should go without saying, and I said I would say this a couple more times today, so here's one of them. It goes without saying, obviously, we believe marriage is between a man and a woman as Jesus himself defines marriage in Matthew 19. Jesus does address what marriage should look like. He says, haven't you read, Matthew 19, 4 through 6, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, before we go any further, I want to say, please don't look over at your spouse. Give her the side eye, men or ladies. Don't look at him and say, this is the Sunday I said we should sleep, right? This is the Sunday I wanted to stay home and sleep. This is the last time I could have went fishing. I don't want to, you know, let's not do that today. All right, let's just hang on. And you know what? Next week, we're going to be talking about leadership in the home with children and the kids are going to be with us. That's good timing, right? So the whole way home, you can say, did you, did you pay attention to pastor? Did you pay attention to the message? Right? And you can hang that over their head. No, I'm kidding. Please don't, don't abuse your kids with the, with the message. But this is all said just to bring us to the first point, wives who submit. Because wives who submit plus husbands who lead equals marriages that last. Now we're going to read again verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. All right, I can already hear the bottles breaking and the shotguns being reloaded. So I had to laugh a little bit as I was preparing this message. Last Sunday, I I knew this was the direction I was being led. And I said, okay, I'm going to start on this. I, I want to get into this. And I crack open the first commentary This is what it says. I approach the following material as one might when venturing into a minefield. No kidding. Caution is the order of the day and adequate preparation. And I can tell you, if I have ever over-prepared for a sermon, this is today. All right? When you preach on the topic of marriage, it is so much like preaching on money. Everybody's already got their own opinions, but you know what they say about opinions? They're like armpits. Everybody's got a couple. They usually stink. But everybody has read enough books. They've got enough experience, and they really think they've got it all figured out. In some cases, they may even believe they know more than Scripture itself. They may know more than God himself. People get very touchy when we talk about marriage. Rightly so. It's personal. Some folks believe they have cracked the code and 
after years of screaming at each other and being angry at each other, and I don't like this word, men, please don't use this word in your home, but after nagging and complaining, right? They, we've got it figured out. We live in peace, or at least we coexist in our marriage, right? With less turmoil, less shouting, less nagging, less tears. That does not mean their marriage is good, and it doesn't mean that your spouse is content. It doesn't mean that you have a marriage that's going to last. And most of all, it does not mean, even within your home, that you have a marriage that is pointing others toward Christ. And as Christians, that is what we seek to do. So we have to open this portion of Scripture, and we have to say, Holy Spirit, give us fresh eyes, give us fresh ears, and pour into our heart the truth that you need us to hear. You have to ask, even if you've been married for thousands of years, ask what golden nuggets have I left unmined in Scripture? Now, to understand this passage, we have to look back a little bit. You've all heard me say this millions of times. Context is king. We have to see what Paul was doing, what he was saying leading up to this portion. Now, this is, I want to be clear, this portion of Scripture is specifically for women and men who are married to Christian men and women. All right. In 1 Peter 3, he talks about being married to an unbeliever, and we will touch on that briefly, but because of time, I don't have, if you have a spouse who's an unbeliever, we're not covering that today. This is for married Christians, okay, and single Christians who want to take good principles and, and put them in their toolbox, like I mentioned. But Paul was writing to Christians, telling them how to be imitators of God, how to interact with one another. And back in verses 15 and 16, he says, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Now notice something in this passage. Paul is not talking to a group. He is speaking specifically to individuals, wives, husbands. He makes that very clear. Now he will summarize at the end, but he is speaking to individuals here. As for the single person who says, well, this doesn't apply to me, I'm not married, I would challenge you with this. Are you living in a way that your future spouse would be happy to be married to you? Are you living in a way to prepare your home for a happy marriage? Now, Jennifer and I were both products of, if you don't know my wife, Jen, we are products of what has become called purity culture. And what that means is, on our wedding night, that was the first night either of us had ever been with someone else. And I remember all through high school being teased for making that choice and standing on that. I had girlfriends who were very upset about that. Uh, Jennifer had a boyfriend who was not too happy about that decision as well. But I remember, even into my 20s, second-guessing that decision. Of course, it doesn't help whenever one of your best friends tells everyone it's not really by your choice. God gave you that face for a reason. But you got to have a little bit of humor in this sermon, guys. I mean, come on. Okay. But then I met my friend Danny. Danny was one of those guys, we would say he was a stud. He was a womanizer. Today, they would say he's got that dog in him. I mean, he had stories that would make every sailor on earth blush. I mean, it was a lot. And I remember we were together at work one day, and, and I just said, you know, Danny, I can't live like you. I could never live like you. He said, what do you mean? I said, my wife was my first, and she will be my only, as far, as far as I know. 
As long as I'm married to her, she will be my only. I don't ever want someone else. I began to tear up. This guy who would brag about his escapades and the clubs he'd gone to and the women he'd brought home to his place began to tear up. And he said, Jeff, I wish I had that. I'll never be able to say that to my wife, that she was my only. You love your wife more before you knew her than I'll ever be able to say I loved my wife. It clicked with him. He got it. Now, that's not to say I was always perfect, and that's not to say, look how great Pastor Jeff is. He has the perfect marriage. Please don't think that. But both Jennifer and I were taught from an early age to love our spouse before we even knew our spouse, to love them when they're not even around us. And the more we give away, and Paul speaks about this to the Corinthian churches, the more we give away parts of our hearts, parts of our body to those outside of marriage, the more baggage we are going to carry into our marriage. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't forgive and there's no room for grace. There is, absolutely. But the point of the matter, what I'm trying to say is, we don't need to make our spouse pay for choices they had nothing to do with. We all bring baggage into our marriage. So we have to ask that question. Are we walking in a way that is honorable. Paul says, pay careful attention to how you walk, each of us as individuals. Then he goes on, he says, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. There we go. Submitting to one another. Don't like that, right? For being honest as Christians, we look at that and we go, mm, turn the page, keep going. But we have to stop. We have to ask, what does that mean? Especially when we're looking at hierarchy, we're looking at leadership within the church, the established chain of command. Now, in verse 21, the word for submit is hupatasamanoi. Now, the last portion of that word really just means he's speaking to a plural group, a lot of people. It literally means to be subject to one another. In other words, if I was speaking to the whole church, that would be the word that I would use. He's speaking to the group there. To subject yourself, to listen to one another is what it means. To not think yourself above someone else. And you've all heard me say this before, but we are all on equal ground before the cross. But when it comes to our text today, verse 22, wives submit to your husband. It's the same root word, hupatasso, but the tense of the word has changed. It's hupatasaste. And this slight change means that it is a more intimate submission, that it's more purposeful. And the context actually gives that to us when Paul says, as to the Lord, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The same exact word and same exact tense that Paul uses when he writes to the Colossian churches, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now that seems a little less strict than his letter to the Ephesians, but it's still applicable. It's still true. Now some might say, well, if I let my husband lead, you know where we're going to end up. In just a few weeks, we will be bankrupt. We will be homeless within a month. He's so incompetent. He is so this. He is so that. And hear me when I tell you, he will never be anything else as long as you hold that attitude. Submission does not mean being a doormat. Submission means not being a pushover. 
It means being subject to and allowing and aiding a leader to do what God has put them in their role to do. I'll say that again. Submission means allowing and aiding a leader to do what God has put them in their role to do. Do not forget that when the woman was created, what did God say? Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Being submissive does not mean being less than. Okay? Ladies, understand that. Being submissive, being a a servant in the home, does not mean you are point B. It doesn't mean you're point number two or anything like that. Now, maybe you're one of those wives and you want your husband to feel like the king of the castle, and that's great. But don't, don't you ever forget, you're still his queen. Now, I like the story Mark Gunger tells. He tells this awesome, if you ever go to a Mark Gunger seminar, it's one of the things he says. He tells this story about two young men in high school who were fighting over the same girl. Real romantic story. And one of the guys ends up winning, and he goes on. He, he marries her, and they move away, and he becomes a real success story. He starts his own business, becomes very wealthy, becomes a, a congressman, and all this stuff. And he's just this rags-to-riches story. But when they go back to their 50-year high school reunion, the other guy shows up. And he goes up to the wife, and he says, well, it really looks like the better man won. I could never have been a successful businessman. I wouldn't have been a successful congressman. And the wife just laughs and says, well, had I married you, you would have. The point is, she was the woman who helped make her man what he would become. The mission does not involve being less than someone. It means helping that person fulfill their potential in their role. Much in how the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal to the Father, yet they submit The Son submits to the Father. The Holy Spirit submits to the Son and the Father. There is perfect submission within the Trinity. Jesus said, I and the Father are one in John 10.30. But he also said, truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. And ladies, wives should want to submit to their husbands. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, He is the Savior of the body. That's verse 23. Now here we see in marriage, it is meant to reflect the relationship between Christ and his bride. He is the Savior of the body. The Greek word there is sotir, and it almost always gets translated Savior. But when you look closer at it, the other definition is deliverer, rescuer. So if that's the case, pressure's not really on the wife. It's on the man. The man is the one who's going to, if you want your wife to be queen, have to act like a nobleman, not a barbarian the minute you walk in the door. Ladies, you can say amen. right? Wives, if you want him to be your knight in shining armor, then maybe, maybe, it's okay to be the damsel in distress now and again. Let him rescue you by opening that jar of pickles. Right? Let him slay that dragon that is the book on the higher shelf that you can't quite reach and need down, or changing the light bulbs, things like that. Now, I laugh at the Facebook post just like all of you have laughed at it. I'm sure most of you have because you've liked it when I've shared it. 
When I married her and I said for better or worse, I meant I would slay dragons and I would take a bullet for her. I didn't mean I'd vacuum and wash dishes. But for some women, actually most women, they are one and the same. If you want her to follow you, you need to be her deliverer. You need to be willing to do the hard things. If we as men expect our wives to be the women of God they should be, we must be the men of God we are called to be. Because you serve your wife, because you do nice things for her, does not mean you're submitting to her. Instead, you are earning her submission. And wives, if you want your husband to be Superman, don't treat him like a dopey Clark Kent. The husband is the head of the wife. If we want her to follow our lead, we must lead in a worthy way. Pay careful attention how we walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Men, we will answer. Hear me on this. We will answer for how we lead our wives. Wives, you will answer for how you followed your husband. We all will stand before God as individuals. Paul expands on this elsewhere when he tells the Corinthian church, I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, commentator Lynn Coick brings this to clarity in her commentary. She says, Submitting to authorities in this day and age that Paul's writing, submitting to authorities was as natural as breathing and just as critical for the existence of ordered society. Paul's language of submission, therefore, was easily understood in its larger context because everyone submitted to someone else. Even the emperor submitted to gods. Within almost every relationship, there was a superordinate and a subordinate. And examples include patron, client, master, slave, In other words, what what she's saying there, uh, based on this passage, is we all follow somebody. We all have to answer to someone. And ultimately, we will all answer to God for our actions. This is the context in which Paul's writing. He goes on in verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are are to submit to their husbands and everything. Now, here's where things get hard. Wives submit to their husbands but their husbands submit to the church, and the church submits to Christ. As followers of Christ, we submit to Christian leadership. We submit to the church, as wives also submit to their husbands. Some translates say, be subject to their husbands. So Paul saying here, therefore, wives, submit to your husbands in everything. When he says that, submit to your husband in everything, Now, in recent years, that has taken on a more R-rated meaning that I'm not even going to touch on a Sunday morning. But it's also been used to excuse marital abuse over the years, and I believe we can all agree that's wrong. But Paul is reiterating himself here. He's He's establishing that the woman is to submit to her husband in everything. So if she is submitting to her husband in everything, then in everything, the husband must strive to be a leader worth following. And this actually ties back to verse 23, the husband is the head, Christ is the head of the church, the church is the body. But you notice, wives, when he talks to the women, he doesn't call them any specific body part, right? You're not a left arm, you're not a foot. The body, the whole thing. This ties back to something Paul says earlier in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, speaking the truth in love, let us go in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted, knitted together, by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Now, we're going to get more into what Paul's the case that he's building 
But there is unity within the whole body, and the head, the head directs the whole body. The head makes decisions for the body, protects the body, makes decisions that protect the body, feed the body, guide the body. So the husband must, therefore, make decisions that direct the family, puts food on the table, guides the family. Now, if one member of the body decides to go off and do their thing, what happens? Bones get dislocated, limbs get removed, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of pain, a lot of death in some cases. And Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. But we know whenever Paul's saying that, he's talking about the church. Well, the allegory stays the same even within marriage, okay? If dad says we have to do A and mom says we have to do B and dad doesn't see the sense of doing B, so dad does A, mom secretly goes ahead and does B anyway, well, forget letters. There's going to be a whole lot of number two. Let the listener understand. It does not help the situation at all whenever we undermine one another or try to manipulate one another. Now, if mom and dad speak about A and B and decide to negotiate and compromise and do C, it's not about mom or dad winning. It's about what's best for the family, about what's best for the household. Now, if dad still chooses A and mom insists that they should choose B, but they do A, And let's just say they fall off a cliff because dad didn't want to stop and ask for directions and option B was let's stop and ask for directions. The whole way down down to the ravine, the wife should not be saying, I told you so. I said we should have tried option B, right? That doesn't help the situation either. But if after the crash, the helpmate, the helper says, you know what? Let's renegotiate and let's see where we went wrong and maybe try option B. That is a Proverbs 31 woman. How many of you know Proverbs 31 is a great guide on what a biblical woman should look like, what, a, what an admirable woman looks like? It says in first, uh, sorry, Proverbs 31.10, Who can find a wife of noble character? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will not lack any good thing. She rewards him with good, not evil, all the days of her life. Now, if it's all the days of her life, chances are, if she's married to an actual human being and she's not some imaginary unicorn type of woman, that husband's picked option A and they've crashed a time or two, right? But she still rewards him with good. In fact, it goes on, Proverbs 31, 26, her mouth speaks wisdom and loving instruction is on her tongue. Women, if you want a man worth following, be a good follower. And men, if you want a Proverbs 31 woman, guess what? Be a Proverbs 1 through 30 man. If we believe the Bible, then we have to read this and say, okay, you know what? Let me just try it God's way. Let me try his plan because his plan, as we learned last week, is higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are greater than our own. If we want our wives to follow, we must be husbands worth following. Wives who submit plus husbands who lead equals marriages that last. And we go on, husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. Husbands, men, love your wives just like Christ loved the church. Yes, he was willing to lay down his life for her, but he also washed her feet. 13. He broke bread. He gave her something to eat. Luke 22. 
Christ also taught the church. He would take God's word and explain it to her. That's the Sermon on the Mount. He made sure that his his bride understood what God actually said. He prayed with her, like in Luke 9, 28, and he prayed for her. John 17, he says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. Now, guys, I'm guilty of this, okay? I don't know a married man who is not guilty of this, but we all like to do this one thing. When we're around other guys, we complain about our wives, don't we? It's okay. They're over there. They can't hit you right now. No? What? Some of you liars. Um, all right. Just the pastor today. <laughs> but, uh, ladies, you laugh because you know they're lying, right? You, okay. The bovine scatology. Um, one pastor adv- advised me very early on, be a pastor who prays. But I was married for the better part of the decade before I realized I should be praying for my wife and praying with my wife. And again, I mentioned 1 Peter 3. The apostle gives uh, wives who are married to unbelieving husbands instruction on how to submit to them. But notice what he says to the husbands. He says, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So your prayers will not be hindered. Think about that. Many men want to know, why does God not answer my prayer? Well, it's because you're not running your home in a biblical way. You're not loving your wife in the way God has established. The word hindered, by the way, in the Greek, it's, uh, it's a word I'm not going to try it today. It literally means to be cut off or killed. Men, we choke our prayer life to death when we do not love our wives, when we do not show them honor as co-heirs of grace. And you might be sitting there, and I know some of you are probably thinking this. Pastor, you don't know my wife. You're absolutely right. Praise God. You're the one that married her. And God knows her better than you do. So you know now you need to love her and lead her and try to understand her and honor that woman. She is not your old lady. She is not your mother. She is your bride. She is your helpmate. And the word of God says we would do well to remember that. Notice, too, that Christ made his wife holy. He cleansed her. Today, men want to lead their wives into sin, just so they don't have to do it by themselves. I'm not even talking about the big sins yet. I mean the little things. Men will gossip with their wives. Men will hate with their wives. Men will manipulate and hide behind their wives. And sometimes men will use their wives to get what they want and then be surprised when their wife learns to do the same thing back at them to get what they want. As men, we have to strive to keep our marriages pure. So I want to address one thing specifically with the men this morning, one thing that is killing more marriages today than ever, and it's pornography. If you're a man, you're watching that, now is the good time to stop. If your wife permits it, if she knows you're looking at it, then you keep this in mind that she is letting you cheat on her in your heart and you're not keeping your marriage holy. You are not keeping your bride holy. You need to confess that sin. You need to repent of that sin. Remember Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. 
Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will freely forgive. Guard what you expose your mind and your eyesight to. Sometimes it's okay to just close out Facebook rather than keep scrolling. Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How could I look at a young woman and feed your mind consistently with the word of God? Psalm 119.11, I've treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. When, when, if we want to win the battle against pornography, then what we have to do is cultivate a consistent love for Christ. When other men come to you and they ask you, can you hold me accountable? Could you help me in this battle? Help them. Pray for them. And I've, I've failed in helping other people with this myself. But they come to you, they come to us because they see the life we lead and they know that we have won that battle or we've overcome that and they'd love our help and they'd want to know what we know. So as their, our brother in Christ, we should help them cultivate that relationship with Christ and that love for Christ and think on righteous things. We need to be careful how we talk to him or, or talk about him. Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, where they dwell on these things, help your brother cultivate that in his life. We need to cultivate a mindset that is honoring to Christ if we ever hope to honor our wives. Can't honor, keep this in mind, if you cannot honor the most holy being in all of the universe who knows the darkest parts of your soul, you're not going to show honor to the woman who knows how bad you sing in the shower. We must keep our mind holy, keep our brides holy, and watch how sweet our marriage has become. Watch how strong it becomes, and watch how long that marriage lasts. Christ is holy, so he makes his bride holy, and we strive for holiness in our marriage to our brides. Amen? Got deep for a second. Verses 27 and 28 says, He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. As one author put it, for husbands to love their wives as Christ does his church demands a purifying love. Christ seeks to love us in a way that purifies us, that cleanses us, that changes us. Last week's message spoke to that. There is cleansing in him. There is purifying and freedom from every kind of evil and sin. As a Christian, a husband should not be able to bear the thought of anything sinful within his wife. Least of all, he should be disgusted at the thought of someone else leading his wife into sin, including himself. Look at how Jude describes Christ and his relationship to the church. In Jude 24, he says, Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. This is the same way a husband's first passion should be for his wife, that he protect her from sin, that he help her stand in the presence of God without blemish and with joy. Christ does this for his bride. He does this for the husbands. He does this for his church. Therefore, the husbands who follow Christ should do the same thing and seek to do the same thing for their wives. That is the purest kind of love we can show them. Why does Christ do this? Because he's God. And above all, it glorifies God. I mentioned earlier, there is submission within the Trinity. That's true, perfectly exemplified in the Trinity. But there is also perfect love within the Trinity, within the Godhead. 
God loves God. I pointed this out last week. We were made in his image to reflect his love back to him. I didn't mention this verse then, but it says, Isaiah 43, 7, Everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory, I have formed them, indeed I have made them. In fact, earlier in Ephesians, Paul alludes to this himself when he writes, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us and the beloved ones. The most powerful worship a man can have is how he loves his wife. The most powerful worship a wife can have is how she follows her husband. Jesus tells us to do good works so that God gets the glory. In In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. A marriage that lasts, a marriage that is in harmony and follows this principle gives glory to God as we worship him together in the, in the institution he created we call marriage. He who loves his wife loves himself, Paul said. We are doing ourselves a great favor. Now people are, people are free moral agents. We're free to dishonor whoever we wish. You're free to dishonor your wife. You're free to dishonor your husband, your children, your boss church, things like that. But really what Paul is saying is when we do that, we dishonor ourselves and ultimately we dishonor God. So I would challenge you, don't kick against the design he has for your home or anything like that, but embrace it and trust me, you will see revival follow. It goes beyond, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. Or as one couple I know says, I'll pop his pimples, you pop mine. Or he'll pop mine. One uh one married couple said that. It's kind of gross. But, but we love our, as we love our spouse, we love ourselves. Wives, if you honor your husband in your home, he will love you in that home. He will lead in the home. If he doesn't, then he's in disobedience. And everyone's marriage looks different. I know that. And uh, that's okay. But the question comes back to, Am I loving my wife the way she needs me to love her? Am I following my husband in the way he needs me to follow him? Am I respecting? Does he know that I respect him? Does he know that I'm following? Because a wife who submits and a husband who leads means a marriage that lasts. And I'll, I'll quickly begin to wrap this up with my third point this morning, marriages that last. Paul writes in verses 29 and 30, For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. You know, Song of Solomon is one of the most beautiful books of the Bible. It really is. And it gets contorted, it gets twisted, and, and made to mean things it doesn't mean. And many people believe it's, a, it's an allegory for Christ's love for his church, and that is true in the sense that how a marriage reflects the, li- the love that Christ has for his church. But truthfully, when we read and we study Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, it's a wonderful portrayal of how God seeks for a man and a woman to adore one another in their marriage. Is it intimate? Yes. Is it sexual? Yes. But it is also full of love and admiration for one another. That's why the man sings, Song of Solomon 115, How beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful. Your eyes are doves. I don't recommend comparing your wife's eyes to birds, okay? Especially birds that we all get together and shoot, all right? But, husbands, how many of you still look at your wife and tell her she's beautiful? How often do you tell her? 
Dale, you are going on husband of the year if we believe it. You keep raising your hand. That's great, but do you, do you tell her she's beautiful often or has sin and time robbed you of that? The woman replies to the man, how handsome you are, my love. How delightful our bed is verdant. How many of your wives, how many of you wives look at your husband and say, he's still as handsome as the day I met him? Or <clears throat> at least you love him as much as the day you met him, right? Or has sin and time robbed you of the ability to do that? Paul says, no one hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. Jesus points to this as well when he points to the greatest, uh, the greatest commandments. He says, the second great command is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than this. When we are in Christ, and we're all members of his body within the body, as we see in the coming weeks, we're going to get deeper into this. There's an established pattern of leadership and submission, but there is also a place for love and respect. He writes on, Paul does in verses 31 and 32, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now Paul is quoting here, he's quoting Genesis 2. Christ also quotes this in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees confront him concerning divorce. Marriage is a sacred thing. Like I said, it was established and condoned by God himself. Jesus said, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Malachi 2.16 often gets translated, I hate divorce. Other translations take it differently, but the point is there is covenantal language there, basically saying God rejects it. He doesn't like it. He definitely hates it. See, the Lord sees divorce as a gross act. Obviously, there is a biblical stipulation. We all know that. And some of the worst kind of, kinds of sins, adultery or intense abuse. Like one author said, like blood splattered from a murder victim upon their killer, divorce leaves evidence of the sinful act. Divorce, as marriage was invented by God, so was divorce. But it was actually a way to separate oneself from a sinful, idolatrous spouse. But the Pharisees, they wanted to justify, when they go to Jesus in Matthew 19, they want to justify their divorces because, if you'll excuse my Verizon training here for a minute, they wanted to upgrade to a younger model. They wanted to get out of their contract. To do such a thing is a perversion of marriage. Divorce is far too often in our society. It's accepted and it's seen as an easy way out. In fact, Rather than learning to be subject to her husband, a wife will file for divorce. Instead of learning to lead like the man of God he's supposed to be, a man will look for something else that pleases him, pleases his desires, all in the name of pursuing happiness and divorce his wife. This is not God's design for marriage. This is. To sum up, verse 33, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. This is the key to a lasting, happy marriage. Now, we're going to move to close in a moment. But I want to ask everybody to stand this morning. If you're married or not, that's okay. We're not going to do some kind of Mooney wedding. If you don't know what the Moonies are, well, you hit some, you miss some. That's okay. But I'm going to ask you to do this. Husbands, go find your bride. Take her by the hand. 
and just stand beside her. Yeah. Guess what, guys? We got to move. Cole, you're okay. You get a pass. The single guys, you get, it's okay. Stay, stay standing with me. This is what I want to ask you to do this morning. I want you to take one another's hand and I want you to pray together. Out loud. Don't just stand beside each other. Pray. Pray for needs that you have, that you know, or is in one another's lives. Pray for things you know he needs, things she needs, things that are going on. Wives, pray that your husband loves you as you need to be loved. Pray that he leads you as you need to be led. Pray that God give you the strength to submit and follow your husband. Men, pray that your wife respects you as you need to be respected. Pray she follow you as you need to follow her. Pray God give you the strength to lead her and lead her in a biblical way as you lead your family, as you follow Christ. Now, those of you who are single, you do not get off the hook, all right? Those who are not married, I'd ask you to stand as well. And maybe you're just a teenager and you don't have any plans to get married anytime soon. That's okay. Pray for your future spouse. Doesn't matter how old you are, pray for that man or woman that even now God prepare them for you and that he prepare you for them. If you're a woman, if you're a young lady, pray for the man who will lead you to Christ. If you're a young man, pray that God shape her into the godly wife who follows you to Christ. This is not, I want to be very clear about something, this is not complementarianism. This isn't putting our wife in her place or the husband in his. This is the word of God. This is what Paul says we are to do. The Holy Spirit through Paul says we should do this. And we can push back or we can embrace this. So this morning, if you don't mind playing, Georgette, we're going to close like this, and we're going to let the Holy Spirit work something new in our homes today as we say, God, we've tried our plan. Let's try yours. And we'll close in a moment in prayer. Please pray with your spouse.